Hey everybody, it's James Lindsay. This is the New Discourses Podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm going to do what I do sometimes. I'm going to take an article that I published here on New Discourses and uh, read it to you effectively. So I want to give you the, the context of this. The title of this that I recently published is Intersectionality is American Maoism. And I think that's the correct assessment, kind of give you the history of why this or the context for why this article got written. I got invited recently, and I'm not going to tell a bunch of the story. It's, I mean, maybe interesting, but I don't want to bog this down. I got invited recently to speak at Northwestern University, which is one of the top 10 universities in the country. It's just outside of Chicago in Evanston, Illinois. It's um, a very elite, very expensive, very elite university. And uh, I got invited by the Young America's Foundation, YAF, to speak there, and the students were pissed, and they tried to do a protest. Well, they, first, they tried to just use crap that they found on me on the internet that's inaccurate and whatever, like my Wikipedia and my funny Southern Poverty Law Center uh, profile to try to get me canceled before the event, but that didn't work. So they showed up in large numbers protesting, which turns out that the student government um, paid for their protest materials if they wished to do so, and encouraged it. Um, which is sort of scandalous, uh, especially given what happened next. And then they protested, they yelled outside out the windows for a few minutes, and they started to kind of come in, some of them, uh, there was security, which they complained about. They said, well, the student services fees paid for the security, but we didn't want the speaker to have security. We shouldn't have to pay for security for somebody we don't like. But the reason there has to be security is because they act that way. And so you know, whatever, standard left is circular, create the problem, use the problem to their advantage uh, tactics. And so anyway, they slump in and they heckle me and kind of laugh at me and mock me and try to disrupt me. And I actually was not particularly professional and threw it back at them because I am me. And so that was fun um, and whatever. And they asked some impertinent and pertinent questions sort of pertinent at the end. I get not going to get into all that. And then uh, it turns out the reason I said that it's interesting that they pay the student government paid for this is the next day the student government froze the funds of the other organization that sponsored the event, which was the Northwestern University College Republicans, accusing them of having created a harmful flyer for the speech because it shows a picture of the rainbow aviator sunglasses from the cover of Cynical Theories and where the rainbow is on. They put the internationally recognized symbol for poison, which is a skull and crossbones of a particular design on that. And so the idea was obviously that this is a poisonous ideology, but of course the woke see whatever is most useful to their vulnerable narcissism and threw this giant fit and said that they were suggesting the death of gay people. Never mind that the flyer was designed and put out by a gay man. Never mind. And obviously I'm super anti-LGBTQ, even though the same person was largely uh, responsible for getting me invited, was extraordinarily welcoming and receiving uh, and receiving me, was extraordinarily wonderful to be around, uh, all around great, great guy. Uh, the woke are ridiculous. That's beside the point. So I don't normally give a talk like this. So they asked me to talk about intersectionality and its ideological dangers and identity politics and its dangers. And so I wanted to write down my thoughts before I spoke, which I don't normally do, which I didn't use these as notes. I didn't read my speech. I just talked. But in the afternoon before I went and gave the speech, I wrote this down, especially because I'd realized going into this about three or four days before I went up 
to Evanston to speak, I realized I wanted to give an address to the woke students that were would likely be present. Now, there's also no video recording of this because the university strictly prohibited. I don't know if they didn't want, if it's just a general rule or if they didn't want my remarks associated with Northwestern on video, but Northwestern pr would not permit the recording of my remarks. If somebody took some illegal video or audio and has shared it, then maybe you can catch that, but I don't have any and there won't be any. So what I want to do is go through this, basically just read. I might add a little color. I can't help myself. But basically, I just want to read what my intended remarks to the Northwestern audience were if I could have delivered them the way that I wrote them down earlier in the day while I was thinking about it. And so it's an interesting essay as an essay on new discourses because it was written as if I was writing a speech. But at any rate, I left out the thank you, welcoming kind of thing at the beginning. But I just said it isn't possible to discuss intersectionality without starting with Kimberly Crenshaw, who named it. Like with most woke Marxist ideas, though, intersectionality is recycled and repackaged more than once. Crenshaw is therefore the wrong person to discuss to talk about the issue, but she's a starting place. So I'm going to actually cut myself off here on the reading, and I'm going to give you the punchline so that you know where we're going. As the title says, intersectionality is American Maoism. I'm going to make the case historically that the proper place to look for the origination or the origins, I should say, of woke intersectionality as we hear about it today is Mao Zedong, his identity politics, his program, and his cultural revolution. So all I want to get to is the point that intersectionality comes from Mao, not Crenshaw. Now, there are reasons to, leave, but to believe, by the way, just still parenthetically, that Crenshaw is knowingly a Maoist. For example, she edited the very famous, very large red book called Critical Race Theory, The Key Writings That Form the Movement. And I've been told quite credibly by a few different people now that that book is kind of tongue-in-cheek referenced as the big red book, as kind of an homage to Mao's little red book. Uh, that aside, my argument essentially is that Crenshaw repackaged other ideas. Those ideas were repackaged from somewhere else, and those ideas are best traced back to Mao Zedong and his cultural revolution. So intersectionality is a program for affecting a cultural revolution is the essence of my argument. So now you know where I'm going. So last sentence where I left off, Crenshaw is therefore the wrong person to discuss to talk about the issue, but she's a starting place. Intersectionality was first described by this cumbersome term in a paper by Crenshaw in 1989, wherein she likened the idea of occupying more than one, quote, position of sociocultural systemic oppression to being caught in an intersection of highways. Crenshaw argued that if you are, say, a black woman, occupying at least two such positions of relational systemic oppression, then you might be hit by racism, a car coming down one road, or by sexism, a car coming down the other road, without even being able to be sure which one hit you. She also noted, though her colleague Patricia Hill Collins did it much more thoroughly, to be, that to be a black woman is also to face prejudice and discrimination, so systemic oppression of a unique sort, specific only to that intersected identity. That is, there are certain stereotypes of black women specifically, not because they are black or because they are women more generally, that could also be a source of their systemic oppression. So I'll go a little further. Patricia Collins actually develops that in Black Feminist Thought in the subsequent year, 1990 is when that was published, in tremendous detail. But uh, Crenshaw actually makes 
the, I think, at least partly meritorious civil rights legal argument that it would be possible, at least in theory, she accused GM of doing this, General Motors Corporation. I don't know that her argument holds merit in the specific, but in, in theory, it is at least possible that you could specifically, you could be, let's say that you're a bigoted employer and you want to discriminate specifically against black women. You have no problem with black men and you have no problem with white women. So it's not men that you have, or blacks that you have a problem with, and it's not women that you have a problem with. It's black women specifically for whatever reason. So you could hire ample black men, say, as Crenshaw said, working in the factory floor at GM, that you can get by with any accusation under Title VI or Seven or whichever one it is of racial discrimination. And you could hire ample, say, white women, maybe working as secretaries and, and uh, managers and whatever else in the office, so that you can't be accused of sex discrimination under whichever title that is, seven or six or whatever, doesn't matter. But you could still be discriminating completely against black women. So if a black woman sued, she would have no recourse under civil rights law that says race or sex because race isn't being discriminated against and sex isn't being discriminated against. Something more specific is. And so I think there is actually a meritorious claim here that's worth figuring out how to deal with. What Crenshaw did with it was a train wreck. So that's much more specifically what she did in that particular paper, just to let you know. But to continue where I left off, I said by adding in the confusion of source, meaning not knowing if you were a victim of racism or sexism, to the fact of there being unique discrimination against you, or potentially, so by adding in the confusion of source, that means to occupy two systematically oppressed uh, positions in society is to endure something like four times the capacity for oppression, creating something like a quadratic law of multiplying oppressions across the intersectional matrix of domination, as it is sometimes called. And I think Patricia Hill Collins is the one who originally gave it that name. I could go check these things, but it's not really important. The purpose of intersectionality as a doctrine is therefore to link the various forms of systemic oppression together into a kind of meta-system of domination. It is to insist that all forms of systemic oppression are interlinked, though not the same. Technically, intersectionality then is the dialectical synthesis of the various forms of systemic oppression described by critical identity politics, which I've called identity Marxism into one overarching concept of how systemic oppression manifests and operates in society. So I'm, I did not elaborate in the essay. I want to elaborate on that, but not long. Intersectionality is a dialectical synthesis, and I did do this in the talk, so this is appropriate. So within, say, feminism, which is interested in sex as, an, as a topic, race becomes a contradictory element. And so when you are trying to synthesize opposites through the dialectic, what you end up is creating a synthetic amalgam, a, a synthesis of those diametrically opposed. So race becomes a contradiction within the unity of the otherwise, as they call it, white feminist movement. And similarly, in black liberationism, there were actually genuinely patriarchal organizational hierarchical structures. And um, so feminism, the, the issue of sex, becomes a contradiction. And resolving those contradictions and comparing, what you end up when you start going across all of the identity politics dimensions, all of the kind of more granular intersecting identity issues, is a dialectical synthesis of all of the various forms of identity politics. Now, I didn't wholly, I mean, I did 
you know, figure out and explain this myself, but I didn't pull it out of thin air. In Critical Race Theory and Introduction, Richard Delgado explains this exact kind of dynamic where he says that uh, what originally was CRT, which actually was incorporating race and feminism into kind of one mixture, one admixture of critique, uh, eventually started to splinter in things like Latin crit, Asian crit, etc. So more granular so that it wasn't just race and sex. Now it's Asian specifically, and they're kind of more complex issues within race, and then Lat- Latinas specifically. And so you kind of can see this more granular vision of, of identity politics. And that paragraph, the reason I bring that up, that paragraph ends with the sentence, and so the dialectic progresses. So intersectionality is the dialectical synthesis of the various forms of systemic oppression described by critical identity politics or identity Marxism into one overarching concept of how systemic oppression manifests and operates in society. So like all Marxist theories, intersectionality isn't merely a self-reflexive doctrine. It is also a practice. And Crenshaw was explicit about this point on many occasions. Quote, intersectionality is a practice, end quote, she has often said. Okay, fine, it's a religion. We almost know that at this point, but what is it a practice of? What does it do? Two things. It aims to raise a uh, sorry, it, claim, it aims to raise an intersectional critical consciousness, and it does activism consistent with that consciousness to achieve the outward manifestation of its goals, which is called equity. Intersectionality specifically is a way to yoke together the various forms of critical identity Marxism attendant to this view and this aim into one single metasystem. Critical consciousness is nothing more than understanding the world the way intersectionalists do. Society is actually organized by largely deterministic intersecting systems of oppression that have to be identified and denounced in the hopes that something better will emerge from the denunciation and ensuing power grab by the intersectionalists who, as the right thinkers, will make sure that the right decisions are made and equity is achieved. Equity, on the other hand, is a little more specific. It is an administered socio-political economy in which shares are adjusted so that citizens are made equal. Let me say that again. Equity is an administered socio-political economy in which shares are adjusted so that citizens are made equal. In other words, equity is socialism rebranded and broadened to include less visible types of social and cultural, if not human, capital. Intersectionality, then, is a cult religion that, quote, awakens, hence woke, that awakens people to this view of man. uh, I messed this sentence up. I need to go fix that. That awakens people to this view of of, of man and the world and the attendant duties of consciousness. I think I fixed it. As it turns out, this model of reality is not just wrong, It's pernicious and divisive. Humans are at bottom individuals, not representatives of intersecting socio-political classes. Crenshaw's intersectionality rejects this vigorously. In her famous 1991 paper on the subject, Mapping the Margins, Crenshaw delineates that there's a fundamental difference between the statements, I am black, and I am a person who happens to be black. The second of these, she says, puts the personhood of the individual first rather than their class identification. 
which she says isn't possible because identity-based power dynamics are imposed upon people. So we can fill in the blanks. They are actually imposed by the racial bourgeoisie. So personhood to Crenshaw is inferior to racial class identity because she has bought into the cultish critical race theory or race Marxism worldview that race is the fundamental organizing principle of society, as described above. Instead, she says, I am black becomes a form of self-identifying with, quote, a positive discourse of resistance, which is inherently divisive because it's literally oppositional. It's also class collectivist and intolerant, in which only makes sense by adopting her cultish mindset about race in Western and particularly American societies. You may have noticed that it is simply not possible to disagree with intersectional analysis because to do so at its heart requires questioning the stories those involved tell themselves about their identities, who they are, and what it means to be human, both in, the, in general and in this world. So that's intersectionality, a means of yoking together divisive identity politics, what I've called identity Marxism, to achieve some kind of social, cultural, and political transformation directed by the cultists who think this way. It is a program to bind Marxian identity politics together to bring society to heal under the discipline of a new standard called equity, which it sees as a measure of and precursor to social justice. But as I said, intersectionality is not original to Crenshaw. Not only were various queer theorists using the phrase of the intersection of sex, gender, and sexuality in the decade preceding her discovery, it emerged directly out of the black feminism school of thought in which Crenshaw participated. The idea of yoking together the various identity Marxist approaches to identity politics, which and the first recorded use of that specific term, identity politics, comes from the Combahee River Collective and its manifesto, its so-called statement from 1977, published 12 years in advance of Crenshaw's first paper on the subject. Now, parenthetically, I did a podcast about this, about the true history of intersectionality, and you can go hear the uh, Combahee River Collective read in full there, if you wish to. The Combahee River Collective was a group of radical socialist black feminists who were dedicated to transforming the feminist movement, black nationalism and black liberation movements, and American society to their way of thinking. The Combahee River Collective was the first group of identity Marxists to flatly state that all forms of oppression are interlinked and operate the way the intersectionality now describes. They were also unabashed in their calls for transforming American society through the movements they were attacking for the broader cause of socialism. Crenshaw, as a black feminist in radical circles herself, was certainly aware of the collective and in fact cites one of its participants, Angela Davis, in Mapping the Margins on something near to the central point. Again, though we cannot say that the Combahee River Collective created intersectionality because, like all Marxist ideas, it is just repackaging and repurposing of older ideas that eventually drag back to the Gnostic social sorcery of Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx predominantly who happen to be three dead white European men. And we add that because the woke don't like those kinds of people, except when it's to their advantage to like those kinds of people. So the radicals in the Combahee River Collective, including Angela Davis very directly, were themselves students of Herbert Marcuse, the most influential critical Marxist thinker of the 20th century. 
Marcuse noted in all of his major works in the 1960s and 1970s that the American and Western working class would not be a suitable base for a socialist revolution because, to put it bluntly and in his own words, quote, advanced capitalism delivers the goods. So the working class isn't just made complacent and, quote, one-dimensional in this way, but also conservative and even counter-revolutionary. Marcuse's solution is to seek out a new working class, a new proletarian class that has the vital needs for revolution. By the way, I've done some podcasts on that, the rise of identity Marxism, for example. Uh, Just go search new discourses for Marcuse and you can find these things. So Marcuse suggested identity politics, the racial minorities, feminist outsiders, and so on. Identity Marxism, including the radicalism of the Combahee River Collective and the intersectionality of Kim Crenshaw, actually gets its start with Marcuse's radical suggestion to abandon class identity for other types of identity and to forge them together. Now, I'd be remiss to fail to remark, as I failed to remark in my talk, as it turns out, but meant to, I thought it and then forgot it, that the ministers of this mentality to the racial minorities, sexual minorities, feminists, and so on, in Marcuse's view, would be the college students. So this idea of creating a over- but miseducated activist youth cadre that would then go out and teach the minority groups to feel aggrieved, to engage in grievance politics, specifically Marxist interpretations of their so-called concrete circumstances, was Marcuse's plan. And that's exactly what we see playing out today. Under diversity initiatives and so on that have skewed and made quotas in, in, in college admissions, we see that the plan's now working both directions, which is in fact to bring the potentially radicalizable youth to the college while also uh, sending the college students out, mostly through social media, to transform the society around them. But campuses, as I can report from Northwestern, which I was not allowed to see as a campus, by the way, I wasn't allowed to be there, uh, except when I was escorted in and out through back doors uh, by security. Um, Northwestern is more or less completely, from the handful of students I had a chance to talk to about it, completely under the thumb of a handful of uh, young terrorists who are effectively the red guard of the campus that make sure everybody is woke or keeps their mouths shut or their life is miserable. And so Marcuse's vision of a repressive tolerance or liberating tolerance on campus and the campuses being the cathedrals from where from which this is all uh, you know, disseminated into society through these radicalizable vectors uh, has been realized pretty much in full according to the plans that he laid out in the late 60s and early 70s. So yet again, Marcuse was borrowing his ideas, though. So Crenshaw didn't invent it. Crenshaw borrowed it from the Cumbahee River Collective. Cumbahee River Collective was just enacting Marcuse. Marcuse, however, borrowed these exact same identity politics, march into the institution's uh, ideas from somebody else. So yet again, Marcuse was borrowing these ideas from another source, and I promise not to run this all the way back to Rousseau, Hegel, or even Marx. Marcuse was inspired by a communist who had a decidedly different tack than Joseph Stalin, whom Marcuse had come to distrust deeply. This character, who had been turned, uh, who had been in turn deeply distrusted himself by Stalin, was running a grand cultural revolution at the time of Marcuse's writing, Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution. Marcuse, like so many of the Western Marxists of the 1960s, for example, Paulo Freire, if you know, you know greatly admired what Mao was doing, so much 
uh, more successfully than either the disaster of Stalin or the flailing of his Soviet successor, Nikita, Nikita Khrushchev. In the riots of 1968 and 1969, inspired largely by Marcuse's influence, the people chanted the three M's for a reason. Marx, Mao, Marcuse. Marx, Mao, Marcuse. The source for what we call intersectionality today is largely attributable to Mao Zedong. It's cultural Marxism. Sorry, I did that wrong. It's cultural Maoism. So... Maoism is really a form of cultural Marxism put into activist practice through a youth culture. So when I say it's cultural Maoism, it's really more accurate to say it's American Maoism using cultural uh, politics as the as, a, as the wedge. Okay, I said, so thanks to our vigorously redwashed education system in the, re- in the West, very few Americans or Canadians today know how Mao did what he did. Though there are lots of technical elements involved, including a swift and total takeover of all education from 1950 to 1952, he primarily achieved his aims through identity politics, in which several different types of identity categories were bound together into a systematic program of youth radicalization and power acquisition, just like today. Mao, following the Soviets, defined, quote, the people and its, quote, enemies. Among the people were the socialists and communists, but also the peasants and laborers whose image the CCP used while failing to do much for them and visiting untold calamity upon them over and over again. Also among the people were those Mao and the CCP considered to be able to be reformed, though they had a great deal of struggle ahead of them so that their thought could be reformed to the Chinese socialism. The enemies of the people were myriad, including former Guomindang officials and sympathizers, landlords. When I said landlords, by the way, in the the, the talk in Northwestern, the um, woke people literally cheered. They literally cheered uh, that landlords were enemies of the people. Uh, so the enemies of the people were myriad, including former Guomindang, that's the Nationalist Party, officials and sympathizers, landlord landlords, sorry, rich farmers or kulaks in the Soviet area, and the unreformable counter-revolutionaries, bad influences, and rightists or right-wingers. Mao advocated ruthless treatment and taught open vicious hate of the, quote, enemies of the people, but always held out the opportunity, often through brutal struggle brainwashing and hard labor, to become one of, quote, the people, by adopting what he called socialist discipline under his system of what he called democratic centralism that would administer an economy that redistributed shares so that the people were made equal. More specifically, Mao originally created 10 identities for people, five black, those were bad, and five red, and those were good and communist. People and their children, grandchildren, and further descendants and relatives were classified and handled according to this system. The idea was primarily to pressure youth, given black identities, to want to renounce and destroy the four olds of society and become Maoist revolutionaries. That would also include, by the way, their parents and their other teachers, etc., A variety of identity campaigns involving both carrots and sticks were employed in the process, denounce your old ways of life and thinking publicly and repeatedly, undergo criticism, self-criticism, and struggle, not to mention study, denounce your father and family if they had the wrong kind of identity, pledge your loyalty to Mao in the revolution, help his revolutionary cadres and forces. Those kind of things could get you a ticket out of a black identity and into a red one, at least with enough thought reform. 
The goal Mao had was to enact the formula he claims he created in 1942, though it is probably a Soviet import. That program he called Unity Criticism Unity. Create the desire for unity, just like Biden's Democrats. When the people desire to have unity, show them how they are failing to live up to the standard unity demands and do it through criticism. Get them to self-criticize, put them through humiliating struggle, teach them that they're racist and must become anti-racist and would ex- and would do so except that they lack racial humility and exhibit white fragility because they covet their own white privilege and the benefits it provides, for example. Exact confessions and apologies and promises to, quote, do better. Always hold out radical identities as a possible escape from some or all of the pressure which never quite goes away. White and queer is still white. You need to do better. Only when they die to their old selves and are reborn on the side of the oppressed, to use Freire's language anyway, can they adopt unity, quote, on a new basis. That's Mao's language, which Mao called socialist discipline. Today, of course, under intersectionality, the program is the same. Straight, white, male, cis, blah, blah, blah. Those are black identities. Ally, radical activist, change agent, queer, and all that. Those are red identities. The goal isn't unity, it's inclusion and belonging. Those sound nicer. Those are unity on a new basis. The program is the same. Create a desire to belong. Initiate a period of struggle, criticism, and self-criticism as a cult initiation and hazing ritual. And achieve unity under the new inclusive standard. Basically, what the idea of the criticism struggle part is, is to tell you that you're the reason, you're the problem. You're, we would have unity, except some of you still have racist ideas. We would have unity, except some of you are still transphobic. So the trans, the trans people here don't feel like they belong. They can't feel like they belong until you change your standard. You change your view. You need to do better. So that's the unity criticism, unity model imported under the banners of belonging and inclusion that have run rampant and taken over our society. It's just Maoism, guys, with American, new words and American uh, identity categories. That's all it is. What this achieved, especially thanks to his thorough and early capture of the schools, turning them into revolutionary universities and high schools, was the creation of an extremely radical youth culture that didn't know any other standard than socialist discipline some 16 years after Mao first claimed power. These were called the Red Guard, and they were selected only from the ranks of the Red Identities. They had praise heaped upon them, they were celebrated and affirmed, and they were largely above the law in their rampant and destructive radicalism. They ransacked homes and temples, destroyed statues and art from the old culture, bullied, humiliated, and tortured wrong thinkers, sometimes to death, all with the blessings of Mao's police. They didn't last long, though. From 1966 to 1968, they ran a red terror through every corner of China, and Mao rode the wave of that terror to increasingly consolidated and unquestionable power. In 1967, halfway through, in 1967, the Red Guard did what Mao had most hoped they would do. They captured, struggled, humiliated, and exiled his primary political enemy, Liu Xiaoqi who had replaced Mao when he stepped down from the head of the party following the catastrophe of the Great Leap Forward, which killed over 55 million people. So let me give you some historical color on this. In 1958, Mao launches what's called the Great Leap Forward. The Great Leap Forward is a catastrophe. 55 plus million people die. That's the most conservative estimate I've ever read is 45 million. Most extreme I've ever heard is closer to 100 million. 
truth lies somewhere probably in the middle. 55 is kind of the number that I hear most often. 55 million dead, mostly of starvation, lots of mass murders. Chinese economy completely collapses, completely wrecked. It's such a catastrophe. They asked Mao to step down as the head of the CCP. So he does, believe it or not, he steps down because he has no other option to save face. And then this character, Liu Xiaoqi, a high-ranking communist official, takes over his spot. In taking Mao's spot, even though Mao willingly stepped down from it after being told he had to, Liu Xiaoqi became Mao's chief political enemy. This is what people supporting this communist crap need to understand. Your chief political enemy are other communists. It's not people outside, the people you're telling everybody to hate and treat as the enemy. The goal is just to keep those people kind of around so that they're a boogeyman and um, marginalized, completely marginalized. But your real enemies are the other communists. So you're, if, you, if, if the woke succeed, they are constantly going to be cutting each other and playing power struggles and playing games like this. And the people die by the millions while these little stratagems are played out uh, in order to cause these things to happen. So that's the context of Liu Xiaoqi replacing Mao, this other guy who was his full-blown comrade up until the moment he stepped into his uh, Mao's former seat, became Mao's chief political enemy and target. So the Red Guard in 1967 manages to get hold of Liu Xiaoqi. They struggle him viciously. They drive him off into the countryside dies in misery, in primitive conditions, humiliated. But remember, he was a top Chinese Communist Party official. He wasn't some guy. He got accused of being what they called a capitalist rotor, somebody that was bringing capitalism in secretly through the back door by these uh, hooligan youth. Okay, so that was the main function Mao wanted the Red Guard to achieve, was to drive out his political enemies, not just transform culture in China. Transforming culture in China wasn't really that relevant. He needed a terror that he could make use of, but the main purpose of that was to create justifications to drive out his political rivals. And the woke are playing a dangerous game if they think that this isn't where they're going, because it absolutely is. Especially the white woke. Best of luck to you guys. So anyway, to carry on, with its primary functions achieved, Mao declared the Red Guard was turning too far left and was too radical. And so he had the People's Liberation Army put them down. That was his army, by the way. By late 1968, the Red Guard movement had been completely suppressed, with many of its participants killed by the government they had supported into power and most of the rest sent to the peasant countryside to be re-educated re through farm labor in brutal, primitive conditions. The woke change agents of today should take note of this fate because they are the red or rainbow guard of the Western cultural revolutions. So that's what intersectionality is. Intersectionality is a meta system meant to yoke together all of the various identity categories to create a functional pressure pump from bad identities to radicalized good identities. That is, intersectionality is Maoism. Put another way, intersectionality is a system for achieving what Mao referred to as the quote, correct handling of contradictions among the people. See, the feminist movement is too white and needs critical race theory, a contradiction among the people that must be handled. 
the black liberation movement was too patriarchal and needed feminism, a contradiction among the people that needed to be handled, and there was your birthplace of intersectionality. Feminism is too trans-exclusionary and needs to be physically beaten by men in dresses and humiliated through campaigns to erase womanhood and motherhood completely, because it's a contradiction among the people. Enemies of the people say good whites, need to be suppressed, struggled, and criticized until they do better or get canceled from professional society. Another contradiction among the people that needs to be handled. So those are the remarks that I wanted to give about the history, by the way, of intersectionality. Intersectionality is Maoism. Maoism is brutal. That's what it looks like. That's how it works. It's just been updated and imported using American-style identity politics. But I ended my remarks, and I ended this essay both with a note to young woke people. I spoke to the woke people directly. They laughed at me. They jeered at me. But I don't care because I'm right, and they needed to hear it. So I started off this way. I said, I think you'll find what I have to say to you mostly incomprehensible, but you need to hear it. See, the problem is, is nobody's telling these kids the truth. Their teachers are lying to them or distorted themselves. Their professors are, their administrators are, a lot of their parents did, almost all their peers are. Nobody's telling them what, what, what they're actually involved in and what's actually coming. And I'm frankly not quite as um, genuinely warm as Matt Walsh uh, any longer. I used to be softer. Matt said that he wants to tell the trans people the truth because he cares and somebody should care about him. I not particularly caring about these people anymore. I do, I would rather see them prosper and flourish and have better lives than what they're setting up. But there's like a dark part of me, honestly, that wouldn't mind to see them get what they think they want and kind of laugh before I get put down too. And so um, I'm only partly motivated by that. I just think people need to hear the truth. And uh, so this is what I had to say to the woke people put better than I could do it on the spot while I was getting jeered at and yelled at and booed and laughed at. By the way, I got the wokes to cheer for Mao. And it turns out I found out later that there was a, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this. I don't want anybody at Northwestern struggled for this. So I guess I won't say that part. So I'll leave that out. But I got them to cheer for Mao and it was disgusting. And it was noticed that it was disgusting. So anyway, what I said is, this is what you are participating in, whether you know it or not. American Maoism. This is what your schools and universities and influencers are miseducating you and brainwashing you into. Western Maoism. Maoism with American characteristics. And this is what you need to know about where it goes. The whole philosophy is based upon the formulations of Hegel's vision for how to move history to its intended end. The right side of history. And what Hegel said about you, not it, you is this. History uses people and then discards them. Let me say it again. Listen, woke people, your movement is this. History uses people, that's you, and then discards them. It's also the reactionaries. It uses both sides, by the way. It uses people to create clash, clashes and conflicts that will be synthetically resolved. But the people are just cannon fodder for the movement of history. History uses people and then discards them. That's Hegel's view of people's role in the broader movement of history. And history kind of works like a deity that needs to be, it's sort of literally very hermetic thing. We're not getting tangentialness, but the man's job is to have these conflicts and clashes so that he can complete history, at which point utopia arrives. By the way, Hegel was rather heretical, but he was a Christian theologian in this capacity, uh, is deeply heretical. Uh, Christians wouldn't recognize him, but he was actually a Christian theologian. So what you're actually participating 
is a twisted Christian eschatology. But anyway, as a movement, back to the woke people, as a movement, woke believes itself to be the movement of history. The woke movement believes itself to be the movement of history. History is using you as a woke person to move itself. It will discard you. You know how everything in woke philosophy is so-called temporal and spatial and, most importantly, contingent? So are you. You are a contingency for the woke movement. You have your time until you don't. When you become useless or a hindrance to the movement of history, you will be discarded. Every Marxist and Hegelian movement in history has proceeded in this way, and this one will not be different, so I wish you luck with that. What you need to understand about the people you've been trained to see as your, quote, enemies, or transphobes, racists, fascists, homophobes, or whatever else it is, that most of the people you think are, is that they are not those things at all. You've been trained to hate, just like Mao trained his students to hate allegedly in the name of stopping hate. These people you hate are by and large trying to warn you, not trying to uphold oppression. And now what you need to know about the people in the movement you're supporting, including your friends in this movement, is that you are less than disposable to them. Contingent barely covers it. The woke movement pretends to care about you or worse, quote, people who look like you, but it does not. It is using you so its sociopathic fringe can gain power over society, using you as cannon fodder for their unconventional political warfare apparatus. Instead of living your life, growing, learning, preparing a future, you're doing activism for them, and they will discard you, will discard you. You are worse than disposable to them once you get power. You're actually a problem. You're being trained by this movement to be a destabilizer. That's what all this disrupt and dismantle stuff is about. They need to disrupt the existing system to install a new one. Their intention is to establish a perfectly stable system with them, not most of you, on top of it. And people trained and brainwashed to be destabilizers are a problem in such a system. Mao said that himself too. He said that the handling of the people is different in the different phases of the revolution. First, you encourage and, and support the destabilizers, and then you crack down on them so that there's total stability under the new standard. The Red Guard were there one day, and they were gone the next. You are an asset today and will be a liability tomorrow. You will be discarded coldly and possibly violently. You need to make no mistake. This fate has awaited the change agents of every red revolution in history. Communist defectors have been trying to tell you for decades, longer than most of you even have been alive. It will not be different this time in anything except method. If you as wokes win, you surely lose. All but the most sociopathic and sycophantic of you, in which case you hollow yourselves out and sell your souls if you have one left by then, and become a true monster of history, all but that most sociopathic and sycophantic group will surely lose. If you don't believe me, let me ask you, do you see anything like woke identity politics in China today? Is China woke? Will it go woke? No. They already did that. That phase of their revolution is over. 
It is viciously suppressed there, and they laugh at you here in the West for your useful idiocy and call you bisaw, white left. They know what you are and how misinformed and misguided you are. Their operatives attempt to stoke these fires and use you because you are strategically useful to their anti-American aims, which you may foolishly share. In China, however, they're openly encouraging patriarchy and masculinity. They're racially ruthless. They stamp out homosexuality. Why? They did intersectionality already, got what they wanted out of it, and discarded it and its change agents in favor of power. That's your future, too. Look at the screen, scan your face, and smile for the government, and don't you dare signal in any way that you think anything you shouldn't be thinking. You have been falsely convinced that you're the protagonists in a vast morality play called, quote, the arc of history, and that you're, quote, bending it toward justice. You're, quote, on the right side of history, and that feels good. And it will, right up until the boot comes crashing down on your face. Then you'll realize it. You are bending the arc of history, of course, if we'll even indulge such a metaphor, but you're bending it straight into a 21st century gulag. Whatever those will look like in our increasingly black mirror society, you will be thought reformed or you will be discarded. So do you want to be its guard, Agent Smith? Would you like to be its administrator? Is it worth the sale of your soul? Some of you might aspire to such a demonic station in your lives, but most of you don't. And you'll be subjected to this instead, even as a student at an elite university. This corruption of you and your future is happening in place of your education, which is simultaneously being degraded in every meaningful sense of the word. You're not getting the education you could, or perhaps aren't getting a real education at all. And you're not learning to be informed, independent adults who can answer questions about reality and navigate it successfully. You're being taught that you have to defer to some kind of an expert to answer a question like, what is a woman? Meanwhile, you're getting degrees that are increasingly being seen as liabilities, not asset, in the working assets. Sorry, let me start that part again. Part again. You're getting degrees that are increasingly seen as liabilities, not assets, in the working world outside of the most corrupt megacorporate sector, which you allegedly hate. It's also our new Western Soviet. It's a council of stakeholders that knows the so-called science of right human relations and has the keys to, quote, sustainable development. Employers are increasingly suspecting you're probably woke, radically leftist, entitled, unlikely to work hard, likely to create a hostile working environment, underskilled, and likely to sue if you're fired, even on perfectly solid grounds. And they are right. You are a liability to employers already by virtue of the fact that you're getting a degree from an elite university. And many of them are still only hiring you because they have to, to keep their place in the corrupt corporate scoring schemes that control the way business is now done in the West. If that gives way, who are you? If it succeeds and you participate it, if it succeeds and you participate in it, what are you? Let me give you the answer, kids. Fascists. Make no mistake, if this system loses, you lose because your university tried to make you change agents and global citizens instead of educated adults. If this system wins, you lose because you know too much and are too big of a problem. 
your only option will be to sell your soul to it. And how much is that worth to you? You think I'm kidding? Mao said, quote, not to have correct political opinions is like not having a soul. Think about that and what it's costing you, whether you participate in it or cower against it. Doesn't that ring true, though? Your soul, that's what you're sacrificing. So, why you? Well, bad luck. Because you happen to be at the age you are at the very worst time in Western history to be the age you are. And because many of you come from wealth and status and other resources, the system covets and requires to succeed. You see, they're not really against privilege. They just want to redistribute it and repurpose it, and you have lots of it that they can steal and make use of. They need those resources. They also need your youth, your uh, your. They also need your enthusiasm and your zeal. They need your impressionable minds. They need the future citizens and future leaders. But history uses people and then discards them. They don't need you for long, and they only need you for specific purposes, and then you will be corrected or discarded unless you choose to come off worse by selling out to it. And most of you can't. My message to you about intersectionality is simple. You need to know what you are really involved in. Stop participating, deprogram yourself and your friends, and start fighting for the blessings of liberty that allowed you to have the privilege to think in this way in the first place. You can and might lose it, the first generation in American history to face the loss of liberty, and you're enslaving yourselves. So-called liberation movements are lies. Mao called his army, the same one he dispatched to destroy your counterparts in the Red Guard, the People's Liberation Army, for a reason. You need to fight for liberty. Your chains that you think you need liberation from are forged by frauds and locked only in your heads. The oldest recorded cautionary tale in human history, the story of the serpent and Eve in the third chapter of Genesis, warns you about false liberation. Whether you are religious or not, what they call liberation is a destructive lie. But it is true that you are the future, and that your choices matter, and that you need to choose better.